0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. In all the president's men, as reported by Woodward and Bernstein, Deep Throat says to Woodward in the bowels of a garage, it leads everywhere. Get your notebook. There's more. And so there was, just as there was with the story of Harvey Weinstein, but on a larger plane, the story of men behaving badly and getting away with it. Fortunately, journalism is more than just the first draft of history. Sometimes facts especially if they are an agreed-upon set of facts that are exposed, can change the course of history. Woodward and Bernstein are certainly an example, but so is Cy Hirsch for reporting on My Lie, Neil Sheehan on the Pentagon Papers, and Bart Gilman on the Edward Snowden revelations. Now add to this pantheon Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey for their reporting on sexual harassment in the workplace at the highest levels, and ultimately on Harvey Weinstein and the explosion of the Me Too movement. Megan Tuey and Jody Cantor are investigative reporters at the New York Times. Megan Toohey has focused much of her attention on the treatment of women and children. And in 2014, as a reporter with Reuters, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. Cantor and Toohey have shared numerous honors for breaking the Harvey Weinstein story, including the George Polk Award and the Pulitzer Prize for public service. It is my pleasure to welcome Megan Tuey here to the program to talk about She Said, breaking the sexual harassment story that helped ignite a movement. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you here. When you started reporting out on this story, to what extent was it focused on Weinstein and, and to what extent was it at first the larger, the larger canvas of sexual harassment in the workplace at the highest levels?
1: Well, in 2017, what we knew at the New York Times was that we wanted to launch an investigations of sexual harassment uh, across a variety of industries. So the Harvey Weinstein investigation was just one among many. Our colleagues were pushing into Silicon Valley, into the restaurant industry, into academia, into Uh, auto plants in Chicago. We weren't sure what the results of our investigations were going to be, but we knew that we were committed to covering the issue.
0: What was it about the the zeitgeist at this particular moment that, that gave rise to this reporting and that made it so relevant?
1: Well, I think for one thing, you know, I was one of the reporters who had worked in 2016 on stories of women who came forward with allegations of sexual, sexual misconduct against Donald Trump, then candidate Donald Trump. I also then helped cover his election. Uh, so I think that there was for I think there were some people who, uh, you know, some of those the women who came forward with those allegations came under attack from critics. Trump certainly went on the offensive and, and uh, you know, threatened those women threatened me, threatened the New York Times. But I think that there were also a lot of people, including a lot of women, who were upset by that and that that was kind of set the stage for some of the, 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 the desire by particular individuals to want to start to come forward with their own stories of sexual harassment and misconduct uh, in the following year. Also at the New York Times, we saw something remarkable happen in early 2017. Bill O'Reilly, uh, our colleagues, uh, Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt, buck, broke the story of Bill O'Reilly paying out uh, millions of dollars in secret settlements to women who had come forward with allegations against him. That was very different than the Trump story in that once it was published, he was immediately fired from Fox. He, you know, The impact was immediate. And that was really a moment here at the Times when we decided, decided, okay, are there other powerful figures who have engaged in this type of alleged predation and been able to cover it up? And and Weinstein had, you know, there had long been rumors about him, but we really thought that it was the right kind of moment to go in and really apply some serious investigative muscle.
0: The the O'Reilly situation clearly sets the stage for this, and and you talk about Trump. One wonders if this story, the way these stories were exposed and, and reported, might have been different had Hillary Clinton been elected
1: um, well listen there's 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 a lot of um, you know you can sort of speculate about yeah. the different sort of twists and turns what it is that brings about helps bring about social shifts and, mm-hmm. and, and and that's exactly what we did with this book. We really wanted to step back. We watched with wonder as the Weinstein story um, helped bring about this, sort of helped ignite the Me Too movement and we, w- we really felt like as reporters we wanted to, to move forward with our investigating and to, to figure out exactly why that was and to, to track the movement as it took off in earnest in that following year. So we don't just stop with the Weinstein story, we pushed through into the year that followed, uh, including all of the complicated questions and confusion that arose.
0: One wonders what role Hollywood as a place, as a state of mind, played in this. Because one can't help but but look at this story, certainly the, the Weinstein story at the core of this, but, you know, Charlie Rose, Les Moonves, and, 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 and Bill O'Reilly even, some of those that, that have paid the price for this and, and where the system kind of worked in some respects. And yet on the political realm, you know, Trump's still in office, Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court, etc. Something seemed to be different about Hollywood. Talk a little about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, as a reporter who had done some of the initial stories of the sexual misconduct allegations against Trump, and then, you know, our book pushes through into the into the story of Christine Blasey Ford who came forward with uh, you know an allegation of uh, sexual assault against Kavanaugh we have spent a lot of time examining the question of why certain allegations stick and why they don't. And what's clear to us is that when allegations play out in the political realm, whether it's Trump, but also looking back over, you know, in history to Bill Clinton, to Clarence Thomas, that, it's, that so often things descend, it sort of quickly descends into holy war with both political sides kind of taking up uh, arms against each other and the women almost being forgotten. Mm-hmm.
0: Talk a little bit more about why you think that is that that in the certainly in the private realm and in the public realm of Hollywood it was so dramatically different in terms of the way it played out.
1: Well, and it wasn't just in Hollywood; it was across a variety of industries that you saw this truly remarkable thing happen. Starting, well, it, it you know you'd seen it; you sort of there was Bill O'Reilly there was Roger Ailes there was Harvey Weinstein it really did you you there really has been a lot of evidence that there were uh you know that there were sort of powerful figures in the media industry but also beyond who um, after so many years have been able to being able to kind of cover their tracks and 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 um, kind of maintain a cloak of secrecy that that secrecy just shattered in the last couple years. And as more and more women came forward uh, with their allegations, and as, as and as journalists did what we did, I mean, we describe in our book, um, you know, sort of step by step how you know we were able to publish this story. It was not something. It wasn't just a matter of one person coming forward with an allegation and us publishing it in the paper. We really take readers behind. The scenes to show the painstaking work that goes in to, you know, corroborating stories, to main, to obtaining the types of financial trails and internal company records that can help provide evidence of the wrongdoing that you're seeking to document. And so, I think in those cases that that there wasn't, we we were able to show how when these when these stories are done with the cooperation of brave sources and institutions like the New York Times um, at your back, you know, you're really able pr- to produce work where it's not a question of whether or not Harvey Weinstein you know, sort of did what he was accused of. The question was, what's going to be done in response?
0: And certainly in the case of Weinstein, it was a question of numbers, the numbers of, of women that came forward and people that were willing ultimately to speak out was just such an overwhelming number.
1: Well, that's right. And it's interesting to go back to the original story in which there were actually only two women who went on the record in that first story, Ashley Judd and Laura Madden, one famous actress, another woman who nobody had ever heard of. She had been uh, started off and working in Miramax, one of his first companies when she was right out of college, when she uh, became an an alleged victim of his predation. And we also wanted to, to tell the stories of, you know, these women had been able to go where so many other women had just been too scared to go in terms of deciding to be a name source in the investigation and you know, we also wanted to, with the reporting of this book, tell the backstories of some of these remarkable women and how they came to these, you know how they grappled with these wrenching decisions of whether or not to go on the record and kind of break the dam. There was no guarantees that there were going to be dozens of other women who followed. And so, to, you know, in the case of Ashley Judd, you know, she had really been, she w- were able to sort of illustrate how she had this this was just one of the many ways that she'd been committed to the issue of gender uh, equality going back over the years when she was deciding whether or not to go on the record she went for a long run she's a woman of faith she prayed on it and she came back and was sort of a zen like you know assurance that I'm I'm prepared to do this Laura Madden was actually in the process of she was about to undergo surgery for breast cancer and so you know so many reasons not to do something uh, potentially dangerous like go on the record and a story like this, but she brought together her teenage daughters, she told them what she was contemplating doing. They started to open up to her about the stories that they had heard, that their friends had experienced, and it was all the more inspiring. She said, "You know I have to do I'm, I, you know I have to do this. I'm going to make this decision to go on the record right now."
0: One of the things that that seems to have happened as as you and, and Jody report this is that once those women came forward, once the floodgates opened with respect to Weinstein in particular, that there was such consistency with respect to the stories that would come forth by other women and even people that had, had spent so many years covering up for Weinstein.
1: Oh, I, yeah, There's no question that the i mean the the we what emerged was a pattern of alleged predation that stretched back to nineteen ninety and was continuing up through you know two thousand and fifteen and beyond and I think that it was really spoke to the the moral horror of the 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 Weinstein story was not just the fact that this person had engaged in such, in a pattern of predation for so many years, but that he had had help covering it up. And that's another thing that we were able to do through the reporting of this book, was to basically shed light on the machinery and systems that were in place to help silence his accusers and conceal his behavior.
0: What consistency did you see there, kind of across the board, not just in in the Weinstein Company and Miramax, but in other companies where, where there are those that tried to cover up, that tried to help individuals cover up and, and, and participated in that or at the very least stayed silent, what consistency of behavior did you find there?
1: I think that one of the things that, 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 sort of one of the, the themes that emerged in the process of our reporting into the Weinstein Company and Miramax before that, the two companies that Harvey Weinstein ran with his brother Bob Weinstein, was the fact that there were in fact people who had glimpsed uh, the allegations of sexual misconduct against him. In fact, there were people who wanted to do do something about it, including his brother, Bob, uh, who opened up to us in a series of interviews and even provided to us a pleading letter that he had written to his brother in 2015, begging him to get treatment for his quote-unquote misbehavior. It's a letter that we produce and it's reproduced in its entirety so that readers can contemplate the question of, you know, when you see something, uh, when when you get glimpsed of wrongdoing. How do you try to intervene? And how can people become complicit in abuse? Uh, In the case of the Weinstein Company, at the end of the day, everybody kind of took a pretty narrow framework in viewing Harvey Weinstein in the context of liability, a potential liability to the company, as opposed to really focusing on sort of what was happening to women and, and other, other employees who might be harmed by him. So they really sort of narrowly focused in on the question of liability and tried to do something about that. And in the process of ignoring the much larger moral problem on their hands, you know, they basically set themselves up for a scenario in which the company was ultimately destroyed because of this problem.
0: I mean and that's kind of one of the big ironies of it because so much of the cover up for so long was really trying to keep the company alive. That's what that's what's different from these stories in the corporate world versus the political realm.
1: Uh, well, I think that's right. I think that there's, listen, I think whether it's in the political world or I, I think that there, that there's differences, but there's also similarities and that there can be kind of machinery in place in both kind of corporate settings and also in political settings to seek to minimize damage and, you know, cover up allegations or battle them or go on the attack against them. And it is, uh, I think that everybody's having to sort of reassess, at least in the, the corporate world, whether or not they have made mis. Calculations along the
0: way. Right. What about the professional enablers? You spend a, a lot of time talking about them. People like David Boys, who was kind of Weinstein's attorney and advisor, and, and later Lisa Bloom, and, and people like Linda Fairstein. Talk about those professional enablers.
1: Well, there's somebody like David Boies. You know, he's one of the most famed litigators in the country. He helped uh, win the case of gay marriage before the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, as it turns out, he has done engaged in a lot of other uh, questionable uh, representation uh, behind the scenes in the case of Weinstein. He worked. He was probably Weinstein's uh, chief defender when it came to allegations of sexual misconduct for 15 years, and. He he helped him conceal. He helped him. He, he helped him spin. Uh, he helped him dodge scrutiny and avoid accountability. And when we went to him seeking comment, he actually submitted to interviews for the book. He basically claimed to have no regrets about what he had done. Lisa Bloom is another care You know, is a, is is another interesting case. Uh, this is a woman who was one of the most. Famous, she's one of the most famous feminist attorneys in the country, daughter to Gloria Allred, also another famous feminist attorney. And in 2016, she crossed sides to work for Weinstein. She said that she did so because she thought he had only, she only was aware of him having made inappropriate comments to women over the years and that she wanted to help him apologize we realized we, in the course of reporting this book, were able to obtain confidential records that showed she had much deeper knowledge of the serious allegations against Weinstein and that she also played a much darker role. In one memo that she sent him in 2016, she basically spelled out all of the underhanded tactics that she was uh, prepared to use to help him undermine one of his accusers, Rose McGowan. And it's just a jaw-dropping blueprint. Uh, she's basically saying, I'm going to take all of the experience I've gained in uh, you know, representing victims over the years, and I'm going to you know, harness that and, and work with you to use that against victims.
0: One of the cliches that we often hear in these stories is that these, this is not about sex, but it's about power. Talk a little bit about that formulation as it relates to all of this.
1: Yes, I think that that's, listen, I think that the, the story of, uh, of Harvey Weinstein and what we were able to illuminate in the course of our reporting is that this wasn't just the story of a particular one individual predator predator, this ultimately became an X-ray into how power is used and abused and how all of these sort of surprising figures that can help that basically align with power, even when it involves predation and cover-up. And so there were a lot of surprising figures who emerged along the way, people who helped bring the truth to light, like Erwin Ryder, Harvey Weinstein's longtime accountant who had been so concerned about what he was about the boss's behavior, that he ultimately became a secret source in the course of our investigation, something that we're able to reveal for the first time. Uh, this is somebody who helped provide documents, internal company documents that helped uh, shed light on what his on what Harvey Weinstein was really doing behind closed doors. And then there were this there, there were the other figures who helped, surprising figures we met along the way, who helped bury the truth, the the David Boyce's, the Lisa Blooms. And so I think think that, that collectively they become a real interesting case study in the abuse of power and how people can become complicit.
0: At the end of the day, did Harvey Weinstein have any defenders that weren't on the payroll? In other words, David Boyce, Lisa Bloom, they were all getting paid. Were there any, was there anybody that came forward to defend Weinstein when, when all of this broke that wasn't being paid by him?
1: You know, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, Linda Fairstein was not uh, on was not. Paid by Weinstein, and yet this woman, Linda Fairstein, she's uh, you know she's a f- sort of a fo- she's a former uh, sex crimes famed sex crimes prosecutor here in New York, and she was uh, by Weinstein's side uh, at the very end when he barged into the New York Times the day before the story ran, trying to stop it. She was by his side and had uh, acknowledged that she had also kind of consulted for his legal team in 2015. When he was trying to beat back a criminal investigation into alleged sex, you know, his alleged sexual abuse. And so this is a, you know, I I, I can't tell you exactly why she made those decisions. Uh, She has, after leaving, uh, after serving after she stopped being a prosecutor. She, she became a crime novelist. She even wrote a Vanity Fair piece at one time about sort of joking about her desire to have Harvey Weinstein uh, make a movie out of one of her books. So uh, in that case, I, you know, she's one of those figures where I'm left with certainly more questions than answers.
0: And before I let you go, talk a little bit about that day that Weinstein did come barging into the New York Times because you were very much a part of that conversation. And there's something very pathetic about Weinstein in that story that that, that really makes him look so small at the end of all of this.
1: Right. So we were engaging in a series of phone interviews with him, and then in the day before the story ran, he actually barged into the New York Times. We got a call saying Harvey Weinstein's on his way to the New York Times, so he's going to be there in five minutes, and we were kind of forced to, to let him in and, and sit down with him, uh, and he showed up with Linda Fairstein, with Lisa Bloom, with another powerful attorney, Elkin Abramovich, and with these folders of information and photographs that he wanted to use. Use, sought to use to try to smear the women that some of the women who were he thought were going to be going on the record in our story and it was really it, w- it was remarkable because one as investigative reporters we had obviously done background checks on all of the accusers that we were planning to use in our story so he certainly wasn't presenting us with anything that that, that sort of changed our minds or our calculations on our end and if anything it just shed light on it just said more about him and the types of sort of tactics and uh, uh, you know, kind of bullying uh, efforts that he had made, and the people who were willing to be by his side in the final hour.
0: And what was your impression of Weinstein in that moment?
1: Well, Weinstein really, in the course of our interviews with him, swung back and forth from like flattery to threats. This was somebody who I, you could just feel, and this is these are among the kind of ones, uh, in some cases off the record or on background, uh, scenes of our the behind-the-scenes story of our reporting that we were able to bring onto the page in this book so that readers can be there with us when, when he's barging into the New York Times, showing up in the lobby of the New York Times when he's on the phone trying to uh, basically... Uh, kind of plead with uh, Dean Bacay, the executive editor of the New York Times, who was not going to succumb to his attempts at intimidation and bullying and so in you know in the end we really felt like he wasn't ever sort of scary or menacing to us but we also recognized we were much more worried for our sources you know we had the an entire institution uh by our side backing our uh, investigation and we were really concerned about all of the kind of vulnerable women and other sources uh who were out there uh, and and what he might try to do that to them. But in the end, the story is really a triumphant one, because you're able to see what like, the combination of brave sources and a strong institution are able to do when they've got facts on their side. Right. You know, that was no match for his bullying. That was no mat- match for his intimidation. And in the end, it helped bring about a, a, you know, a, a social shift.
0: Right. I mean, it was the opposite of grace under pressure. He becomes almost a caricature of himself in the end
1: yeah he was you know he was he was he was threatening us with lawsuits he mm-hmm. was on the one hand he was threatening us on the other hand he was complimenting us on the one hand he was making jokes on the other hand he was threatening to go do interviews with other news outlets it was uh, it, it made our head spins and yet as part of the final due diligence of investigative reporting you have to make sure that the subject gets adequate opportunity to provide response. So we were also kind of going on this wild ride for the final 48 hours before publication, uh, just wanting to make sure that he didn't throw us off course and that we were, in the end, able to kind of give give him a chance, you know, make sure that we were fair to him, but that we didn't allow him to kind of sideswipe us and the story in any way.
0: Megan Tuey, the book, As She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that Helped Ignite a Movement. Megan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you again for having me. Thank you.